Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. The event I'm going to tell you about took place in the year 1872. And if you've been listening to this show regularly, you know that I like to give you a couple of other interesting events and facts that happened in the same year, so that you have a feel of what sort of things were going on. So let's get started. On March the 1st of this year in the United States, Yellowstone National Park once dubbed Coulter's Hell after John Coulter of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, is established as the world's first national park. On July the 19th, explorer William Goss reaches Allura in central Australia and named it Ayers Rock. On August the 22nd, the Australian Overland Telegraph Line is completed, providing a telegraphic link between Australia and the rest of the world for the very first time. On November the 5th, in defiance of the law, American suffragist Susan B. Anthony votes for the first time. On November the 18th, she has served an arrest warrant and in the subsequent trial is fined $1,000, which she never pays. On November the 7th, the Mary Celeste sets sail from New York, bound for Genoa, Italy. On November the 13th, which is a probable date, begins painting... Impression Soleil Levant, the painting that will give the name to Impressionism. It's the view from his hotel room at Le Havre in France. And do you remember the Mary Celeste set sail? Well, on December the 4th, the now crewless American ship Mary Celeste is found, still seaworthy, by the British brig De Gracia in the Atlantic. Now there's a mystery. But our event today... Happened at 9am on the 18th of June 1872 when George Robert Nichols and Alfred Lester, alias James Frond, were executed at the Darlinghurst Jail in Australia. They were found guilty of the heinous murders of William Percy Walker, originally from Thornbury near Bristol, and John Bridger on the Parramatta River in Sydney, Australia. Word of the week. And this week, it's my honour to give you the Australian phrase... Fair dinkum, which means excellent. The term comes from a fair day's work, with the word dinkum being added by workers on Australian goldfields. Din-cum comes from translation of true gold in one of the Chinese dialects that was spoken at the time.
On the afternoon of Tuesday, March the 12th, 1872, a labourer was rowing home to Hunter's Hill along the Parramatta River when he smelled something disgusting as he approached Kissing Point. As he drew closer, he saw a man's decomposing body bobbing in the water. The corpse had been weighed down with a rope tied to a stone weighing about 65 kilograms. Police transported the corpse to the outhouse at Faces Hotel in Ryde. The outhouse was the best available place to accommodate the stench, and a doctor made a further examination. In life, the man had stood about 173 centimetres and was in his mid-twenties. He had seven separate head injuries. Waterlogged documents found in his coat revealed the victim was an Englishman named John Bridger. John had been a wardroom steward on HMS Rosario, but had wanted to start a new life in Australia, as what was then called a new chum. But this new chum's new life had been ruthlessly cut short. Robbery appeared to be the motive, as there was no valuables on the body. Police also reasonably assumed they were looking for at least two killers, because one man couldn't have lifted a stone that heavy. Knowing the identity of the dead man, detectives quickly discovered that he had answered one of two job advertisements placed in the Sydney Morning Herald on March 4th, 1872. Talking to newspaper employees yielded a description of the man calling himself T.Y.C., who had placed the ads. The one Bridges applied to read... A steady man required for country store. Drive a pair horse wagon. TYC, Herald Office. And the one Walker applied to said... Clark wanted. Active, intelligent, for country store. Liberal salaried, competent person. TYC, Herald Office. This gave police an idea about who they were looking for. Whilst visiting a Pitt Street auction house, detectives asked the proprietors if anyone was trying to use the sale rooms to sell goods matching a list of John Bridges' missing possessions. Two men had handed in articles of clothing, including distinctive boots, which had already been sold. The detectives were told that the sellers were coming back the following day to collect the proceeds and to offer more goods for sale. So, the following morning... Three detectives were waiting at about 10.30am when a familiar face appeared. This was George Robert Nichols, known to police and not long out of jail. Nichols gave a farcical explanation for how he had come to have the dead man's property in his possession. And when the police mentioned the name of his best friend and former jailmate, Alfred Lester, he denied ever having known the man. George Nichols was arrested on suspicion of murdering Bridger, and searching Nichols' home, police found rope identical to that used to tie the victim's leg to the stone. Meanwhile, Alfred Lester was at a jewellery store in Haymarket trying to sell a watch. The jeweller refused to buy it without proof of purchase. So when Lester went off to get the receipt, the suspicious jeweller sent his brother to fetch the police. And a detective was waiting for Lester when he returned that afternoon, and questioned him about the timepiece and the receipt. He too gave up some nonsense about the situation, but was still arrested for Bridges' murder. 
That murder charge was disturbing enough. What was equally troubling was that Alfred Lester was wearing clothes bearing the initials WPW. Police were well aware that a recently arrived teacher from Melbourne, William Percy Walker, hadn't been seen for a week. When news of this savage murder spread, Sydney, Australia was in shock. Not just at the brutality of John Bridges' murder, but that the accused men were young, educated, well-spoken, handsome and respectably dressed. They were far from the image of the bestial criminal lurking in the shadows of the rocks or Darlinghurst. But both men had substantial criminal histories. Robert George Nichols was born in 1838 in England, but his family returned to Sydney when he was just a few months old. He went to school at Sydney College in Hyde Park, but left at the age of 14 to go to sea. A year later, back in Sydney, he was arrested for forging a note worth £40. After a few days in jail, he went back to sea, but in 1861 served 12 months in prison in London for fraud. He returned to Sydney and upon release got married and had two children. But being a father didn't seem to set him on the straight and narrow. Instead, he placed a newspaper ad for a girl to work as a servant to a lady. Two women responded. He hired them and then stole their clothes and used an auction house to sell them. After fleeing police and committing another forgery, Nichols was eventually caught and sentenced to Darlinghurst Jail for two years on May 16, 1870. On that same day, Alfred Lester was before the same court on three counts of forgery and two of obtaining goods under false pretenses. He and Nichols had a lot in common. Lester came from Dorset, England, and was born into a wealthy family in 1848. Leaving school at the age of 15, he started work as a telegraph clerk, but was caught embezzling funds. He fled to London and found his way to Sydney in 1869, where he got a job with a surveyor, but he stole from his boss and, like Nichols, was sentenced to two years in Darlinghurst Jail. It's not surprising that behind bars, Nichols and Lester became firm friends, and when they were released in 1872, they worked together at the Sydney Meat Preserving Company. On Monday, March the 18th, 1872, the alleged murderers appeared in Sydney's Central Police Court. Both men were remanded in custody and appeared in court the next day. During the inquiry, loads of witnesses said that they had last seen John Bridger in the company of men fitting the descriptions of Nichols and Lester. A man who shared a drink with Bridger the day he disappeared testified that the victim had used a barrowman to transport his trunk wooden box and other possessions to the King Street Wharf where he was to meet his prospective employers. He also identified the dead man's boots which another witness testified to having made while an auctioneer told the court that he'd sold them on behalf of the prisoners in the dock.
word on the street. Today, my friends, we're taking a stroll down Penn Street, one of three streets in the Quaker Friars area commemorating William Penn, the English leader of the Quakers, and the only one remaining. The others were Callowhill Street, he married Hannah Callowhill, and Philadelphia Street, Philadelphia being the capital of the state of Pennsylvania, North America, which was founded by William Penn in 1681 and named in honour of his father. Penn was governor of Pennsylvania from 1682 to 1684, after which he returned to England and became a supporter of the Catholic James II and worked for religious tolerance. With their investigation, the detectives gradually put together the story of John Bridger, who had reached the wharf and was met by Nichols and Lester, who told him there wasn't room in their private boat for his possessions. So they convinced him to leave these items in an adjacent public house for safekeeping, promising they would arrange for them to be shipped the following day. A servant at the hotel testified that, not long after, Lester and another man had removed the trunk, box, seaman's bag and other items, taking these things away in a horse-drawn van. Further witnesses said the goods were taken to the room Lester rented in Miller's Point. Lester's landlady at Miller's Point said at this time he'd shown up with a scratched face that his mate Nichols explained away as being caused by a fall in a boat. A fellow lodger testified he'd seen both men in possession of Bridger's belongings, which became exhibits in the courtroom and had been found by police in a room the men rented in Strawberry Hills. Police had also found a rough diagram of a man bound with rope and discovered quality clothing bearing the initials WPW or the name W.P. Walker. With preliminary evidence presented, the jury found Nichols and Lester guilty of the willful murder of John Bridger, and the judge committed the men to stand trial. Acting on information from the inquiry, three policemen took a boat at Parramatta River to Five Dock. Around 4pm, after seeing a fatty substance in the water's surface at Hen and Chicken Bay, the police saw a man's legs sticking straight up out of the water. The head was under the water, having been weighed down by a rope tied to a heavy stone. The man's skull had been bashed in. At the Circular Quay morgue, a doctor and policeman inspected the man's clothing, finding some coins, keys, a diary and two rings. His singlet bore the initials WPW. William Percy Walker had been found. Two witnesses who had known him during his brief time in Sydney were summoned and both positively identified the body. A detective compared the rope that had been used to weigh down Walker and it was identical to the one in the Bridger case and to the rope found among Nichols' possessions. The news appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, describing William Walker. The body found in the Parramatta River is that of William Percy Walker, who arrived in the colony about three years ago. Shortly after landing, he was engaged as assistant by a storekeeper at Amphitheatre, in whose service he remained until November last. While at Amphitheatre, he 
he was very active in furthering all religious movements. In addition to teaching in the Sunday school, he acted as lay reader of the Church of England and in this capacity gathered a congregation at Mountain Hut, a village about two miles from Amphitheatre. It was this congregation that presented to the deceased the silver watch found in the possession of his supposed murderers. When asked about the watch, Lester said, Oh, it's all right, Mr Cayman, it's not my watch. Nichols gave me that watch to sell for him. The police learned that Walker had been renting a room in Bridge Street from a Mrs Stevenson, so they went there and searched it, and among the dead man's effects was a draft of a letter addressed to TYC, the initials used in the Herald ad, in which Walker said he hoped to be granted an interview. Even more damning was the reply from Arthur J. Norton, offering Walker the job, with the handwriting confirmed as belonging to Nichols. At the inquiry into Walker's death, more damning testimony was heard. The son of the dead man's landlady, Frederick Stevenson, identified Nichols as the man who had come to their house to meet with Walker. They even found more letters, this time from Charles Norton, which instructed Walker to meet his new employers at the King Street Wharf. So, from all the evidence and eyewitness statements gathered, the police discovered that on March 13th, around 8pm, Walker had gone to the wharf in a horse-drawn van, in the company of Frederick, his landlady's son. During the short trip, the boy had noticed Walker's watch and identified it as the one that Alfred Lester had been trying to sell to the jeweller. Frederick told the inquiry that Nichols and Lester met the van and they told Walker they would be going to Parramatta in the family boat rather than the steamer and that he would leave his trunk at a wharfside hotel and they would have it sent the following day. At the trial, police tendered a detailed list of all the clothing belonging to Walker that had been found in the trunk in the room that Nichols and Lester had rented. They also described the discovery of an iron pick-like tool called a life preserver, covered in blood. A man who rented boats said on three occasions he'd rented a vessel to Nichols and Lester. Two of these dates corresponded with the murders of Bridger and Walker, and each time the prisoners had returned the boat the following morning. The last time, there'd been blood stains on the sail. Nichols told him it was fish blood, but the stains were tested and the results said that they came from a mammal. Detective Richard Elliott gave evidence, saying, On Thursday the 14th, I made communication to the officer in charge of the detectives and afterwards on the same day, I went to the auction rooms of Messrs Lister and Grisdale, situated in Pitt Street. I gave them certain information and requested of them if certain things occurred to let me know. On Saturday morning last, in company with detectives Camhin and McDowell, I went to the before-mentioned sale room at 8 o'clock in the morning to await the arrival of the two men named Nichols and Floud. I went inside, leaving the other officers outside. About half past ten, Nichols, who is now before the court, came into the auction room. I had a conversation with him. I asked him if he had received certain things from Froud, the man who is now before the court, and gave his name as Lester. He said, Froud? Who's Froud? I said, You know Froud. 
You were seen in his company, and you were in jail with him. He said then, oh, Froud, he's not in town. Chillingly, the inquiry also heard from two men who had also answered the ads and who had been prospective victims. A clerk named Charles Napier had two meetings with a man calling himself Thomas Y. Clark, TYC, who he identified in court as Nichols. Napier had been offered the job only for it to be retracted when, it seems, a wealthier victim was found. An unemployed sailor named John Henry Harrison told a similar story. It's no surprise that the Parramatta River murders caused a sensation in Sydney. Up to 2,000 people crowded around the Observer Hotel, hoping to get a glimpse of Nichols and Lester. On Friday, March 22nd, 1872, the jury retired to consider the evidence, and after only 15 minutes, they returned to declare they believed Nichols and Lester were guilty of the willful murder of Walker. The judge ruled that the men should formally stand trial for this crime. With the evidence against them for Walker's murder close to incontrovertible, the Crown would try the men for this crime alone. If they were found guilty, they would hang. If they were somehow found innocent, they would then be tried for Bridges' murder. On May the 21st and 22nd, Nichols and Lester were tried for Walker's murder in the Central Criminal Court. Alfred Lester's legal team, which included Australia's future First Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, argued the younger man should be tried separately. It's likely they hoped to mount a defence that would cast him as Nichols' hapless pawn. The judge rejected their plea. The strongest physical evidence and most salient witnesses from the Walker's inquest were called to testify. The jury took just 25 minutes to find both men guilty and the judge sentenced both men to death. It was then that Lester handed over a prepared written confession in which he portrayed himself as Nichols' victim. He claimed he had no idea his friend was going to kill Bridger until he'd been woken up by a gunshot on the boat and then seen his friend beat the man. Out of fear, he'd helped dispose of the body. Then Nichols had threatened him with exposure or worse if he didn't assist in the killing of Walker. While there was no doubt Nichols was the leader, Lester's self-serving account was scarcely believable and didn't account for witnesses testifying to his role in luring their victims to their deaths, nor for his involvement in selling their property, nor did it account for his life of crime before he met Nichols. For the next two months, the prisoners were held in a new wing of Darlinghurst Jail. Nichols turned to religion and also made a far more believable confession. The document provided a chilling detailed account of the murders, including how the plan had been hatched during the time the pair worked at the Meat Preserving Company. He said, One night when taking a walk and lamenting over our position, I said in a joke to Lester, you better take a man up the Parramatta River, kill him, rob him, and then cast him into the river. The men discussed it, laughed it off, but in the coming days returned to the subject. And... Every time it seemed to have a stronger hold on us. They agreed to go through the plan and get suitable victims through advertisements in the Herald. Having interviewed applicants, they settled on John Bridger, 
and planned to poison him with alcohol laced with laudanum. In the boat, though, Bridget complained his brandy was bitter and stopped drinking. After going ashore to get a stone, supposedly for ballast, they told Bridget to get some sleep until the tide rose. When he was asleep, Nichols shot Bridget in the head. But the bullet didn't kill him. Bridget rose, crying out, Oh, Mr. Clark, you have deceived me. Nichols then struck him in the head with his pistol, apparently knocking him out. Lester searched his pockets while Nichols took the boat into deeper water. Lester then tied the rope to Bridget's feet and they heaved him overboard, with the dying man coming to and saying, Put me on shore, put me on shore, before he sank and drowned. Nichols' matter-of-fact confession continued... A murder of Walker was done in much the same way, but with the following exceptions. The poison was administered in ale, which we learnt was Walker's favourite drink. Uh, neither dose taking the desired effect, we lay down to sleep as before until the tide rose. When I fired, Walker rose and cried, Mercy, mercy, my mother, my mother, spare my life and I'll give you all I have. I struck him repeatedly upon the head with the life preserver. Walker was then thrown into the water on his back, his feet being in the boat. He was crying out, murder, murder, when we put his head under the water, where we kept him until he was silenced in death. And he was cast into the water and he sank. Tuesday, June 18th, 1872, dawned cold and grey in Darlinghurst Jail. Nichols and Lester rose in their separate cells at 6am and dressed in the clothes of the condemned. Rough shirts, jackets and trousers. They each had a hearty breakfast and were visited by clergymen and spent more than an hour praying. At 8.30am, their irons were struck and the hangman and his assistant came and pinioned both men. At 9am, the spectators who had gotten highly sought-after admission to the execution were admitted to the jail. There was, the Herald reported, a... Most unseemly and disgraceful scramble. As these visitors rushed to get the best vantage points, the hangman led Nichols and Lester to the scaffold. From their death platform, they stared around at the 150 people watching in silence. Lester looked pale and weak, but Nichols stood tall and even managed a smile or two. Both men made brief, penitent statements before shaking hands with the clergyman. Before the rope was put around Lester's neck, Nichols surprised Lester by holding out his hand. There was a moment's hesitation, but then Lester accepted. The two men shook hands cordially. The hangman and his assistant fastened ropes with knots, as unslippable as those they had used to sink their victims in the Parramatta River, and white hoods were pulled down over their faces. In an instant, the hangman withdrew the bolt and the two men dropped through the scaffold trapdoor. Lester died instantly, but Nichols struggled for ten minutes until finally he was still. At 11am, a government contractor who had the job of burying criminals took the bodies of Nichols and Lester from Darlinghurst Jail's dead house. But this man also ran the Morning Star Hotel in Waterloo, and this is where he took the corpses, putting them on display in one of his rooms and charging the public to look at the bodies. 
Nichols and Lester had murdered for money. Now, their dead bodies were putting coins in the pocket of a man as cold-blooded, in his own way, as they had been. It wasn't until the next afternoon that police found out and shut down the morbid display. Police resealed the coffins, and that night, they were sent by train to the cemetery at Haslam's Creek, which, fittingly, is a tributary of the Parramatta River, just a little further west from where the crimes had been committed. You probably think you're pretty good at multitasking behind the wheel. I mean, you have to multitask to drive. So what's wrong with checking your phone? The thing is, your brain simply doesn't work that way. Even a quick look at the for quick reply affects your concentration and makes you less able to react to hazards. If you use a mobile phone while driving, you're four times more likely to crash. Think. Put your phone away. Back in the day facts. And let's start with the 21st of May 1932, when, after flying for 17 hours from Newfoundland, Amelia Earhart lands near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, becoming the first transatlantic solo flight by a woman. On the 23rd of May 1701, Captain William Kidd is hanged in London after being convicted of piracy and the murder of William Moore. Also on the 23rd of May 1934, American outlaws Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, or Bonnie and Clyde, are killed by police in an ambush near Sales, Louisiana. On the 25th of May 1961, President Kennedy makes this landmark speech. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. On the 26th of May, 1897, Dracula by Irish author Bram Stoker is published by Archibald Constable and Company in London. And on the 26th of May, 1967, EMI releases Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band a few days early in the UK. It would go to number one for 15 weeks in the US and 22 weeks in the UK. Well, that's the end of the show this week, but don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. And I'd like to take a moment to thank Kate Kendall and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, 
then pop over to tpublic.com where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.